Making it in business isn't about spreadsheets, this or that. It's about guts, tenacity, and above all, street smarts. Join Sarah Shaw as she talks with successful entrepreneurs about all the hard-won lessons they've learned on the mean streets of the business world. If you've ever felt stuck, stifled, or even just scared to get out there and make your mark, you'll learn how even the most successful entrepreneurs overcame failure and found the power to move forward. So forget about learning about business in school, because all you need to make it big is a street smart MBA. And here's your host, Sarah Shaw. Hey there, it's Sarah here with a Street Smart MBA, and I'm really looking forward to my chat with Davis Smith today, who's the CEO and founder of Codopaxi, which is his third business to date. And Davis co-founded Copaxi with the goal of building an outdoor gear company that could make meaningful strides towards helping others. After spending much of his early childhood and adulthood living in Central and South America, Davis realized he could build a company with a supply chain that drastically improves people's lives while raising awareness about staggering global inequalities. Davis teamed up with a business school classmate, uh, Stephen Jacob, and together they founded Cotopaxi in 2014. And Cotopaxi creates innovative outdoor products and experiences that help alleviate poverty, move people to do good, and inspire adventure. And I, of course, I had to look up Cotopaxi because I didn't know that it was one of the world's highest volcanoes and is actually an active stratovolcano in the Andes Mountains near Quito in Ecuador, which I think is really cool that you named it after a volcano. So welcome, Davis. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me on your show. This is fun. So how did you guys come up with the name Cotopaxi? You know, just because I, I, I looked it up and... Um, and was just interested that, you know, explosive volcano, explosive business. I mean, how did, how did you kind of, <laughs> I mean, this is my fantasy, right? How did you come up with that? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a fun question. Um, you know, when I had the idea for this business, I, I had been an entrepreneur a couple times before, and I knew that the name, uh, the name mattered, you know, and more than just, uh, you know, at the end of the day, whatever name I, I chose would work, right? But I wanted to choose a name that mattered to me, that meant something to me. And um, as you mentioned, I, I grew up in Latin America and mm-hmm. I spent some of my childhood and early teenage years living in Ecuador. And uh, Cotopaxi, this, this amazing volcano, kind of overlooks the city of Quito where I lived. And um, the school I went to was actually called Academia Cotopaxi, so named after this, this uh, stratovolcano. And uh, my dad was an adventurer, and so we, we actually spent a lot of time climbing Cotopaxi and camping around the base, and um, it was actually the first place I saw wild llamas, um, mm, and so cool. it's a place that, yeah, it's a place that's always had some special meaning to me and special memories with my father, and so, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's why I ended up choosing the name. I love that. I, I love when, when businesses have a relationship to the name of the company. I just feel like it, I don't know, somehow grounds you more into, into the business if it, rather than it's just, you know, some name and not, you know, like when I've had my businesses, they were always named after myself. And, yeah, you know, yeah. and, it, and it, it, it's funny because you think you relate to yourself, right? Oh, it's got my name on the door. But in a way, as I've grown as an entrepreneur, I realized that for me, um, that having a name to a company that actually has a, a more, a deeper meaning outside of yourself can often tie you to the business in a different way and, yeah. and 
you know, just kind of has that really different kind of relationship. Well, so t- tell me a yeah. little bit about the journey of how you ended up starting this really cool company. <laughs> yeah, so uh, maybe I can start like way back, you know, from the very yeah. kind of kind of my childhood because I think that really shapes um, and, and kind of uh, directed me in this, you know, into starting this business ultimately. So. Um, as you mentioned, I, I grew up in Latin America. My family actually moved there when I was four years old. So I was born in the U.S., but my earliest memories are living in Latin America. And um, I, I think one of my very first memories was actually when we moved to the Dominican Republic. And um, I remember seeing children that were my age, three or four years old, that were standing on the sides of the street completely naked. Mm-hmm. And even at that age, it, it shocked me, and I, I didn't understand why. Um, why like why I, they were I, different. Yeah, exactly. And so from that early age, I started understanding, and my parents helped me understand that I was no better or smarter or more deserving. I was just lucky. Mm-hmm. I, I just happened to have been born into a family or into a country, a place that gave me opportunity that others wouldn't have. And I didn't come from a wealthy family. My family was very middle class. Um, but I, had, I knew I would have opportunities to go to school and, and, and have access to health care and the things that really kind of give you opportunities in life. And so um, from the time I was a kid, I knew I had a responsibility to find a way to help others. And um, when I was in college, I actually took two years away from, from college, and I, went and, uh, I was a Mormon missionary in Bolivia. And um, that was a really transformational time of my life. I mean, I think, um, you know, as a 19, 20, 21-year-old, um, you know, you're, naturally you're not wanting to just um, spend every single day working and thinking about others and not yourself. And, um, it, you know, it's, it, it, for two years, there's no vacation. There's, you know, you wake up at the same time every day at 6.30 in the morning. You go to bed at 10.30 every night at the exact same time every day. Um, you know, you call home twice a year, Mother's Day and Christmas. Mm. So, wow. it, you know, it was, it was hard. It was really hard. And, um, but I, I learned um, to connect with people. I learned to love um, the people of Bolivia, and I really connected with them in a special way. And when I came back to the U.S., um, I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken to leave this country that I loved and these people that I, I loved. And um, I just remember feeling an enormous amount of guilt just living back in the U.S. and seeing that I lived a completely different life. And I went, and went back to college. And, um, but I, I was determined to think of ways when I was in school to find, you know, to discover myself in myself something that I could use to go help others. And um, I actually read an article about a, a man named Steve Gibson. And he was uh, an entrepreneur who had become a philanthropist. And he started a program in the Philippines where he taught entrepreneurship to pull people out of poverty. And um, the article was like so inspiring to me that I actually, I cut it out and I put it in the front cover of my binder at school and I carried it around for like three and a half years in undergrad. Mm-hmm. Uh, fast forward until I was graduating and I'm actually, I, I went back on campus on the weekend for a social impact conference that, that kind of piqued my interest. And while I was in between some sessions, I'm walking down the hallway and I see Steve Gibson, this man from the <laughs> article, and he is getting into an elevator. And so I ran down the hall and I jumped into the elevator and, uh, you know, th- this guy's multimillionaire. He's changed thousands of people's lives. I'm a nobody. And he acts so flattered that I recognized him. And 
um, he invited me to meet with him in a couple weeks in his office, and I took him up on the offer. I prepared for two weeks a pitch where I was going to convince him to let me go work for him. And um, at the end, he just uh, he told me, Davis, he's like, I, I love how passionate you are about finding a way to help um, others, but the reality is that you don't want to work for me. You should be an entrepreneur. That's what I see in you. You know, 10 or 20 years down the road, you can go find your own way of making an impact. And so, um, you know, I know Steve well now, and I, he actually says this to everybody, so I'm, I'm not special, but it felt special at the time to me, you know. So of course. I, yeah, so anyway, I started my first business, and then um, I won't dive into all those details, but ultimately, after 10 years of building a couple businesses, I kind of figured out how I could kind of merge and blend these two passions, the passion of building a business and, and being entrepreneurial, but also finding a way of, of helping people and impacting lives. And so that's what, that's kind of how Cotopaxi was born. Mm, I, I loved your story. And I, I have to say, I doubt he tells every single person he meets that they should go be an entrepreneur. I'm sure that something in, you know, that you said to him made him realize that that would actually be a good path for you. Um, I don't know. I just find that there, it takes a certain type of person to be an entrepreneur. I mean, like, I never thought I would be, I would be one. Um, I'm yeah. a fourth generation entrepreneur. My siblings are all entrepreneurs. I think it's just, oh, is that right? you know, yeah, in my blood. <laughs> it, you know, um, it does tend to, it does tend to be genetic. I, I, mm-hmm. I believe, you know, I, I think, uh, it is something that, that we're kind of some crazy gene that we're born with. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And, and I think it's important to see, you know, to see other people in your family doing it possibly, right, as an, as an mm-hmm. early inspiration. Um, but I, I, well, I'm glad that he told you that. <laughs> yeah. um, so I know that you're, the goals, you know, one of the major goals, right, with starting this company besides selling awesome outdoor gear um, is to make a positive impact on the world. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you guys are doing that and what that um, entails for, for Cotopaxi? Yeah. So, so I had, I had the idea to build uh, a business that could help others. And I, I, at first I didn't even know what we were going to, what business it was going to be, what we were even going to sell. But pretty quickly I landed on the outdoor space and, um, you know, I, I felt like this was a category. It was very saturated. There's a lot of brands, but I felt there was an opportunity to build a brand that really connected with millennials in a unique way through our social mission um, that was really people-focused. And, um, you know, a lot of the larger outdoor brands that we all know, you know, a lot of young millennials see those as their parents' brand or their grandparents' mm-hmm. brand. I mean, they've been around mm-hmm. a long time. And so, um, you know, one of the early mentors that I had, uh, my I got connected with a, uh, one of the senior folks that had helped build the Oakley brand. And um, as I was kind of telling him about what I was wanting to build, and I told him about the social mission and what was driving me to build this and how I wanted to use the business to inspire people to do good and where we could use the business to do good, his advice to me was to find a way to integrate that, that passion and that mission into everything that we did, into mm-hmm. every aspect of the product and the brand. And uh, it, was, it was brilliant advice. And so we really tried to do that. And um, it, it happens um, at every level of the business. For example, if you order a product on our website, you'll actually get a handwritten thank you card that's written by a refugee that's been resettled here in Salt Lake City where we're based. And mm-hmm. so um, there's 60,000 refugees that have been resettled here over the last 20 years. Um, 
we work with newly arrived refugees. This is oftentimes their very first job. Um, they write the thank you cards in their native language um, because uh, you know they're still learning English. And sure. um, you know it's a really fun way to kind of connect our mission to the customer at, at that you know this last little touch point that we have with them. And then um, you know we've had about 95 probably actually a little bit over 100 refugees at this point that have worked through this program. And we also teach them basic job skills and, um, you know, their first job. So it's a really fun experience. You know, we also, you know, integrated this mission through our supply chain. So um, I mentioned that I, I, I fell in love with Bolivia and I lived there for a number of years. You know, I've gone back to some of these communities that I lived in. These are communities that make about $200 a year. Um, and we've, we've built a supply chain where we actually order, we actually buy llama wool from them. And so this year we're ordering several hundred thousand pounds of llama wool from these communities across the Andes in Bolivia. And um, we're using that llama wool to make um, these really amazing llama sweaters that we actually make in Bolivia. Um, we also have uh, a number of jackets that build insulation. Instead of using down or some synthetic fiber, we actually use llama wool. Um, we have some socks that we're, that we're launching this, this month that we've partnered with Wigwam. Um, in Wisconsin to make these amazing llama socks that we're getting the llama wool from Bolivia. So, uh, you know, we're able to impact lives and livelihoods and, and create jobs, you know, through the supply chain story. And we, tr we try to tell that beautiful story. Um, you know, there's some great videos that we have that kind of t show the stories of these amazing people in Bolivia. And so when you wear that product, you're actually connected with a, a person in Bolivia that has dreams and aspirations. And, and um, it's, uh, you know, it's a really fun way to kind of, um, weave the story into the brand through product. Right. I, I love that. And, and do you, um, you guys, I mean, obviously you don't only manufacture in Bolivia. You, man, no. you probably manufacture in other countries. Do, do you, how do you find the factories that, you know, that, because I know you guys are B Corp. And so how do you find the factories that fall into, you know, the regulations and uh, fair trade and all that stuff in all these other countries. Do you, do you personally go yourself, and how, what's that process like? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, so, so, yeah, this is something that matters a lot to us, where we manufacture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fortunately, it's getting a lot easier. You know, I first started um, going to Asia about 15 years ago, and um, it's, it's, it's transformed drastically over the last 15 years. And there's some of the, the highest quality factories in the world are in a number of countries throughout Asia. And um, a lot of these factories are doing things the right way. And so it's just a matter of finding those partners. And it, of course, it means you pay more for the product. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, we've, we have amazing designers on our team that previously worked at Patagonia and Nike and a bunch of other amazing brands that also share, you know, those same values. And so, um, we've been able to work with uh, a lot of the same factories. And, um, you know, some of them have already, uh, all of them have already met these basic standards. But I think mm -hmm. we always try to push them a little bit further. And so I can share one example, uh, or maybe two examples. There's one of our factories is in China, and it's an amazing factory. They actually, the factory owner is so aligned with our mission and our values. And he actually chose to build this factory in a smaller a smaller town in China, instead of building in the big city, like an industrial city where everyone does that and the factory workers come live at the factory, you know, that's right. very typical in China where they live at the factory for like 11 months of the year. They don't even see their own children. 
Um, right. You know, the grandparents are raising the children. Well, he, he did not want that. And so he built, he actually built a factory in one of these towns. And like all the factory workers come from this town. They go home every night and spend it with their children. Um, we actually helped um, build a vegetable garden at this factory. So it's um, the entire factory kind of takes care of this garden and they can use um, any of the produce that comes from it for their families. And um, he has some amazing programs supporting women and, and that are new mothers or that are expecting mothers. So um, just a really special place that um, is, is doing things the right way, the way they should be done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they built another, a community. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, this is the, of course, and of course they have amazing loyalty. Like people that work there, they want to work there forever. And they'll, you know, right. they, they care about the products they make because they feel a connection to, you know, to, to him and also to our brand. Um, you mm-hmm. know, they know that we care about these things and that, about the vegetable garden. So like, when they're making our product, there's, you know, there's, there's love that gets, you know, woven into the product as they're making it. So, right. um, you know, another example is uh, in the Philippines where we make all of our backpacks. It's an amazing place. I love the Philippines. Um, my wife is actually half Filipina, so I have a, a, a kind of a fun connection with the country. Mm-hmm. And, um, but this factory is amazing. The average sower has been in this factory 11 and a half years. Um, it's just a really special place. Uh, they actually um, rock the 80s music, which is my favorite, um, <laughs> yeah. like all day long. And I don't know where they get their playlist, but it's really good. Um, <laughs> and they just, uh, they're just some of the happiest people, the Filipinos. And um, they're really passionate about making this amazing product. And the one challenge that we saw was that two, actually two big challenges. At the factory level, there was a lot of, there's waste. When you, whenever you're making, you know, product out of material, there's going to be waste. And, you know, we use the same factory as all these other big brands that we all know of. And um, I, I just felt like, man, there's an, there's an opportunity here to find a way to use that material. And the second problem that we saw was um, these sewers, they loved their job and they did amazing work, but they never had a voice in the creative process. They were told what mm. to sew by people like us, and then they right. just sewed it all day. And so we wanted to give them choice. And so we came up with an idea, which was to use that remnant material in the factory and to give the sewers complete creative control. So we, they can choose any colors and any materials they want. The only rule is to make no bag alike. And so we have this line of bags called the Del Dia line, and there's six or seven or eight different um, kind of patterns or shapes that are followed, but every bag is totally unique and totally funky. I mean, the straps are different colors. The buckles, as they go together, sometimes are different colors. The thread color, like they'll switch out the bobbin in the, in the sewing machine over and over again to like, it's a, it's a work of art for them, and they're putting mm-hmm. all their creative power into these bags. And so, um, Yeah, you know, they're really the cool. We, it was the first yeah. thing I saw actually on your site when I visited <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I just happened to click on it, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, and I love that. And just really quick for people who aren't familiar, who are listening, who are not familiar with what waste of fabric means is that when they lay the stacks of fabric and cut whatever the garments are or the backpacks or different items, there's extra fabric that's, you know, just laying around. In, like when you cut a sleeve, there might be some fabric around it that they can't fit something in and use it all up. So there tends to be scraps of fabric. It can be up to like 20% waste, right? Yeah, um, exactly. And, and then lots of people just throw that away because the pieces are too small to make anything with. And so what they're doing here is just so uber cool um, and reusing these to make these kind of patchwork 
items that are look like art. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they are. Yeah. They're really they, they are, are art. Yeah, yeah. When, you, when you're wearing them, people stop you. I mean, they'll say, "What? I'm where sure. did you get that?" It's like that is so fun. So it's really right. Cool. And you're, they're mm-hmm. like, "Sorry, only one available." <laughs> exactly. Get another one, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, which which makes it, I, I would imagine, extremely coveted. You know, for people who who buy your brand and are, are interested yeah. in that uniqueness. Yeah. Exactly. It creates scarcity. I mean, there's, yes. if you see a bag that you want, and on our, uh, a number of the products we do, uh, something we call I feel, I'm Feeling Lucky, where you don't get to choose the bag. Like you, you, you choose kind of the pattern, the, the shape of the bag you want, and then we'll send you what's there. And so it's kind of a surprise. And mm. we weren't sure how people would react to that, but it's, you know, the return rate is like one or one and a half percent. I mean, people typically when they get it, they love that it was, you know, it's the only bag in the world like that, and they got it by right. chance. And, um, but we Hand-picked. did start – yeah, exactly. Um, we did recently in the last number of months uh, one of the bags, which is called the Luzon Del Dia, um, we started offering where you can actually choose your exact color. And so we'll have around 30 options on our site at all times. And when you click on that bag, that specific bag that, was, that the photograph was taken of, gets reserved for you and we ship it directly to you. So mm. um, it allows you to kind of um, select the exact bag that you, that you want and be able to see it beforehand. But um, that's a, as you can imagine, that's a logistical challenge. Yes, <laughs> but, <laughs> I can, but, I can uh, imagine because I know a lot about manufacturing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so how did you guys, like, I mean, it sounds like you don't have a design background in fashion, right? You're your design, your background is in business school. Yeah. Um, and, and so how, how did you, like, you know, did you, when you guys first got started with this business, did you find the designers that you mentioned a few minutes ago and just get them to come up with the ideas? Did you have, you know, specifics that you wanted to incorporate based on past you know, your past outdoor experience and what worked for you or didn't work with other products yeah. that you'd purchased in the past? Like, kind of what was that process and how did you kind of figure out what your secret sauce was? Like, what your, you know, yeah. what your yeah. hits were? Yeah, great question. Yeah, so you're right. I, I, I'm not a designer. Um, you know, I, I love product and, um, you know, I, I grew up in the outdoors adventuring. You know, I, so I, I had a I knew what kind of product I loved, and my gear room was 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 huge. You know, I, I love spending time in the outdoors. I love buying new gear, even when I sometimes didn't even need it. But uh, I, you know, my, this is cool. Got to have it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I grew up out outdoors, and my, you know, my dad was actually, uh, as I mean, he was kind of he was an adventurer. So we, you know, we make our own raft and float down the Amazon River fishing for piranha, or we go survive for a week or two on some, you know, an uninhabited island. And I, I, I grew up loving product and, um, and how it, you could use product to, to solve problems as you were in the outdoors. And so, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I definitely had a sense for what I liked and, and you know, how we needed to think about product, but I, I, I'm not a designer. And so, um, you know, I do know how to sew a little bit. I, I, you know, when I was in high school, I used to sew some of my own gear. I'd had, I had a, you know, a number of bags that I sewed. I had a jacket that I sewed, I, my, my own pants and stuff like that. I, I kind of liked making product, but definitely didn't have a talent for it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but uh, so when I started the business, I, I was actually in Brazil when I had the idea. I, um, I was running my last business there and I, I decided I wanted to build it in Salt Lake City in, in the mountains. And so 
Uh, I moved out here. I recruited a team, um, including uh, five people, including two designers that had worked at two of the, the most amazing outdoor, um, some of the most outdoor, uh, amazing outdoor gear brands. And so they came with amazing experience. They were both award-winning designers. And, um, you know, I just, I, I reached out to them on LinkedIn. I, I literally did not know them before. And I reached out and just said, hey, I, I have a vision for building this brand and I'd love to tell you about it. And we got on the phone. I called them from Brazil and we, you know, we Skyped and I just told them, you know, what I wanted to build. I wanted to build the next, the next big outdoor brand, the next Patagonia, the next the North Face. But I wanted this brand to be about changing lives and, and yeah. about alleviating poverty. And I believed we could eradicate, I believe we can eradicate poverty, extreme poverty in our lifetimes. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to be a part of that movement. And so they quit their jobs. They joined us. And, um, you know, they've, they've been kind of the, really the brains behind the amazing product that we've made. And so I certainly have opinions here and there, but, um, you know, our designers have really done a fantastic job of creating great product. Did you guys, um, you know, did you make some faux pas in the beginning? You know, how, talk a little bit about some of your big mistakes and kind of how you guys, how you muddled through it or, um, yeah. you know, what, what, what the secret was to overcoming <laughs> those things. Yeah. We, you know, we all do. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, you certainly make mistakes along the way. And, uh, you know, I will say like uh, having, you know, I, I, I made a lot more mistakes in my first business and then I made plenty in my second business. And so this is my third and I've always done e-commerce. And so I, I think I've made fewer mistakes, but I think the mistakes are typically, um, you know, they're, they're things that you, you learn from and that you, you, you really try to um, do a postmortem and try to figure out how the mistake happened so you can avoid it. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think some of the early mistakes that we made, um, you know, we, uh, we made a ski shell when we first, one of the first products we made. We made, a, a hand, we made five backpacks for, at launch. And then about four or five months later, we launched like four different jackets. And one of those jackets was the ski shell. And it was an amazing ski shell. I mean, made in the same factory as like Richard Branson's space suits that he's making to go out to outer space. Mm-hmm. And stuff. I mean, just like a really, you know, great product. But ski shells, I mean, you only sell them during like two months of the year. Right. So, so pretty quickly <laughs> we realized. Not a big money maker. Yeah. Exactly. So it's like they sell really well for two months. And then you're like, okay, now what do we do with this inventory? It's uh, people are no longer buying ski shells in February and it's still winter, right. but like, you know, we kind of decided early on, it's like, okay, that was a mistake. Like we need to, we need to make sure we're, we're making product that's evergreen that you can sell throughout the year. And, um, you know, not every right, to product somebody can be in sold. some country, right? Yeah. You know, not every product can be sold all 12 months of the year, but for the most part, you know, most of our products, you know, especially bags, and a lot of the, the outer, the jackets that we make, it's, they're, they're products that, you know, you can buy most of the year. So mm-hmm. that was, a, you know, certainly a learning for us. Um, then, of course, every entrepreneur, you make mistakes with hiring, you know, here and there. I, I certainly think that's a mis- those are mistakes I make a lot less just because we're really disciplined in the way that we go through a hiring process. And, um, but, you know, those are, those are mistakes that really, no matter how good you are, and how long you've been building teams, you know, you make mistakes here and there. And sure, you just have you're to, people, you're you know, human. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there's people too, you know, I mean, I mean, I know from past people I've hired over the years, the person is exactly who you want them to be in the interview, but then they just can't produce 
what they're supposed to produce in the end. You know, yeah. some people are or, really good at, at the interview and not so great at the execution. That's true. Um, you know, the other thing that I've learned on, on that kind of that same point is some people are actually exactly what you think they are and uh, they're fantastic. But when you have a business that's tripling or, or something every single year, the needs that you have in the very beginning of the business end up being very mm. different from the needs you have two or three or four years down the road. And so um, sometimes there's someone that's just an amazing startup person. You know, they can wear a lot of hats. They're, you know, very, very good in that, in that phase. But as you start to need more specialists as the mm. business scales, you know, sometimes they, their, their role kind of disappears. And so right. that's a challenge. It's like, how do you, how do you, stay loyal to those employees and give them other opportunities within the company if they exist? Or how do you help them move to the next thing where you know that they're going to enjoy the work more? And so right. um, it's, that's always a tricky challenge. Yeah, that is a tricky challenge. And that's a, that's a really great point to bring up. Um, yeah, that can be tough. Um, how, when you guys got started, how did you start to, because you know, I know you mostly sell online. Um, how did you start to attract your first customers? What was the method to that madness? Yeah, uh, great question. This one's actually a fun one. We, you know, when I was launching this brand, I, I knew one of the biggest challenges of a digitally native brand like ours is that, uh, you know, you're trying to attract, you're trying to build the brand through ads online. Mm -hmm. And that is really hard to do. And so mm -hmm. you need to do something a little different. And, you know, there's different avenues. You know, I think, you know, Dollar Shave Club, uh, you know, Michael, he actually created that crazy video that kind of went viral mm -hmm. and yeah. that helped build the brand. And, um, <laughs> totally. you know, there's, and so, you know, everyone has a different way of doing this, but you have to do something that's a little bit outside the box. And so, I really believed I was, if I was going to build an authentic outdoor brand, I needed to connect with people outdoors. I needed to connect with people offline. And so we came up with an idea of creating an event that we called the Questival. And the Questival is a 24-hour adventure race, and people spend um, that 24 hours with their friends. They put together a team of up to six people. Um, everyone that does the race gets one of our backpacks. And so we had this, uh, you know, we gave hundreds of challenges that you could choose from, and you, so you kind of create your own adventure. Um, challenges everything from going and, and doing a hike or catching a fish or eating that fish on a campfire that you made or roasting marshmallows or, um, or urban challenges. For people that are like, hey, I'm not really an outdoorsy person, there was all these, like, urban fun challenges around the city. Um, there's, you know, giving service in the community, um, you know, all these really some other quirky, funny challenges as well, uh, eating a street taco with no hands. You know, so <laughs> it, it was, uh, you know, this, this really fun idea. And so all we had to do was figure out how do we get people to know about this? So we actually got on Craigslist and we bought two llamas. And um, we, we actually took <laughs> these llamas. This is in Salt Lake. This is in Salt Lake, yeah. Okay. So there's like, uh, there's like 70 or 80,000 college students within like a 30-mile radius of where we're at. Sure. So, we just went to a handful of these college campuses and um, with our llamas. With the llamas? And, yeah. We, we did not ask permission uh, of the college campuses, of course. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, we just thought, you know, well, let's go try this. Let's go bring our llamas on campus and let's see what happens. When people come up and ask, we'll give them a flyer. But we figured if we went and handed flyers out, no one would want to listen to us. But if we had llamas, we figured people would be really interested in what we had to say. So um, 
we brought these llamas on campus. I remember going to one of the universities, and we were on campus, and I'm thinking, okay, how long is it going to take before they kick us off campus? And we were there for like a number of hours. Like the student newspaper came up and did a story on us. There was like hundreds of students gathered around these llamas, all taking selfies and saying, why are the llamas here? And we would <laughs> tell them about the Questival. And um, pretty soon, the campus security roll up in this golf cart. And I'm thinking, oh, no, you know, they've, here we go. And so are they going to arrest go, right? me? Or are they going to take yeah. away the llamas? <laughs> like, what are they going to do? <laughs> yeah, so they come up, they walk right up to me, and they ask if they can take a selfie with the llama. And they take a selfie with the llama, and then they get back in the cart and drive away. And I was just like, this is unreal. Like, yeah. if you have a llama with you, you can break any rule, and no one cares, you know? So, right, well, because they probably uh, assumed you had a permit for it. Probably, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea. But, you know, we, we ended up having thousands of people show up to this first event. We put the get-together event in about 40 days. And um, we had 30,000 social media posts um, the day of our launch, the day we turned on our website. I realized wow. we had something special when I, sh I showed up at a checkpoint where people, like the very first place where they go get their backpack and check in. And there was a line like two blocks long. And as I'm walking by these people, I noticed that they're wearing... Cotopaxi shirts and hats, like with our logo. The only thing is, we hadn't sold shirts or hats. We hadn't sold anything yet. Our site had just barely been turned <laughs> so on that they day. Get they like took our logo and were making their own Cotopaxi gear. <laughs> and there was, there was. And a, you're like, check please. <laughs> yes, exactly. And there was like, there was a jeep that one of these college kids had. He had our llama from our logo painted on his hood and on the doors and on the back of his jeep. Oh and I gosh. still see this Jeep every once in a while here in Salt Lake driving around. I, it's like, I wouldn't even do that to my own car. Like, who yeah. is doing this? This is crazy. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, that's, that was kind of how we got the word out. And we, you know, since then, we, we'll have 100,000 people this year participate in a festival around the U.S. We, we do the events. Basically, every major city in the U.S. has a festival. So it's, um, it's been a really fun way to kind of build a brand and for people to go live the brand values of, of giving back to others, of adventuring in the outdoors with their friends. And so um, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> do you do it in Durango? <laughs> yeah, we, not yet, but uh, Den Denver outdoor, is actually... Big outdoor town, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, Denver is actually one of our biggest festivals, though. So I bet, um, okay. Yeah. I'll have to check it yeah. out. Um, yeah, right, sure. it's only six hours, you're six hours one way Denver six hours the other <laughs> yeah exactly you're kind of right smack yeah. in the middle exactly um, so talk a little bit about social media and how that plays a role in your business since that's kind of how you got yeah. started really yeah so, and, and which social media platform do you find is is best for you yeah so we you know we obviously had a, a great start with uh, with social media and it was primarily Instagram and Facebook, but some Twitter as well. And, um, you know, that, that was, uh, when you have that kind of word of mouth, you know, 30,000 social media posts that they ever launched. I mean, we, we took over people's news feeds for 24 hours, you know, and because people were, they were fanatic about sharing. I mean, they're, you know, one of the challenges is like eating a worm. And so people are like, oh, you know, you don't have to do that. You can choose to do whatever challenges you want. But some people are like, oh, I get 10 points for eating a worm. So like one of the people on the team would say, I'll eat it, you know. So they're posting this on social media. And 
you know, people are going on doing, a, a, you know, one of the challenges, take a picture of the sunrise of the sunrise. And so people are taking pictures of the sunrise, but all the pictures had to have the team wearing our backpacks. And so our bags mm. are like in every single one of these pictures. So um, it was just, uh, you know, social media was a key way for us to build, uh, you know, momentum for the brand and, and to, you know, word of mouth, organic growth. And so, uh, we've continued to use, uh, you know, social media as a way to build the brand through organic postings, through questables, and other. Mm-hmm. If you go to our Instagram page, I mean, all the photos that we're sharing, those aren't paid. Those are people taking pictures of their product and sending it to us. Um, and then, of course, using social through paid means as well. So the way that we get people to learn about the questable, I obviously don't wander around uh, all the campuses with llamas anymore. Um, but, you know, but we, Boring. I know, I know, I know, I wish I could, but, uh, you know, we've got, you know, some really fun videos that kind of tell the story of the festival and, you know, we, mm-hmm. we promote those on social media. So if you're on Facebook, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing channel to be able to, to target a lookalike customer. So you can say, okay, we know that people this age and, you know, that are going to co- these colleges or whatever seem to really resonate with the brand. So you can kind of target those people with, with this video and uh, they end up watching the video and then, you know, electing to do the questable. So, you know, the social is, is certainly a, a very important channel for us. Yeah, I can, I can see. I mean, I saw, you see on your Facebook page all the um, events for the questables for the year are all listed under events. So if anybody wants to yeah, go check it out, yeah. you can see if there's one coming near you. Uh, of course, the one in it's Denver. It's an amazing experience. Two weeks yeah. right before I'm going to be in Denver for something else. <laughs> so, bummer, Denver. bummer. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's definitely um, it's it's one of those experiences that uh, actually I will just say like it's it's life changing. I know that sounds cliche, okay. but really it is. I mean, you go spend 24 hours that are really intense with people that you really love and care about, friends or family, and these are memories that last forever. And, um, yeah. you know, the power of doing that with our brand is that they associate those experiences with, with a brand that, that kind of shares their values. And so right. a lot of people travel, you know, we're doing one in, you know, I think we're doing one in Hawaii this year. So it's like, you know, people will find a destination that's like, hey, I've actually wanted to go to this place. I've wanted to go to Seattle or San Francisco. There's no better way to go experience that city than to go do it in 24 hours with my friends and uh, right. kind of do it on the cheap. And so, you know, there's a, there's some really fun elements of the, of the experience. That's so fun. <laughs> so what's next for Cotopaxi? What do you guys, what's next on your radar? Are you guys, do you follow any trends when you design at all? Or do you just kind of, you know, do your own thing? Are, are you guys coming up with, you know, what's, what's next on your yeah. radar? Well, constantly innovating on products for sure. I mean, we've got some really fun product. Uh, you know, we have an adventure travel bag that we launched a number of months ago that uh, we actually launched on a crowdfunding platform called Indiegogo. And so mm-hmm. it did uh, like one point, a little over $1.3 million on that platform. And then um, we've since moved it over to our site. And so that, that bag's done really well. It's, I've, I love traveling. I'm, uh, it's my obsession in life. I, you know, I've been to close to 80 countries. And so this bag, I'll tell you, there's, I've never used a better travel bag. So mm. it's uh, you know, really always trying to innovate on product. We have a tent that won uh, Best Outdoor Gear of the Year recently. So it's like we have um, you know, some really amazing product. But I think really kind of what I look at next, of course, is continuing to innovate with product. But it's around how do we reach more people? How do we get more brand awareness? And so we're opening up, um, this year we're opening up a couple new 
physical retail stores. Um, oh, your also, own? Yeah, our own. Uh-huh. Great. We have one in Salt Lake now, so we're open a couple more. And, um, you know, that will continue to expand across the country over the next several years. And then um, we also are starting to sell through some retailers, which we previously haven't really done much of. So we typically only sold on our own website, but now REI and Nordstrom and a number of other great retailers are starting to, to carry some of our product. We don't sell all of our product through them, but um, a certain selection of our, of our portfolio of product and um, of that catalog, and then the rest of it's on our site. So, yeah, so those are some of the big projects that we're working on right now. I love it. Innovate all the time. <laughs> yes. um, I love that you're, get, that you're, you know, I mean, I, I love that you're opening your own stores um, and, and can you tell us the cities that you're opening them in or is that a secret? Yeah, so we're opening a second store in Salt Lake actually, uh, which we're really excited about. You know, this is our hometown and, right. um, you know, we, we proudly, I think, share and represent the values of the, of the state and the city that we live in. Um, and then we're opening, uh, our, our third store. We're actually looking to open up later this year. We're still debating between two cities. We're looking at Seattle and we're looking at Denver. Um, so uh, one of those two, and then next year we'll open a handful more. And so we've, you know, looking at, uh, of course, those two cities as well, and then also Portland and San Francisco, L.A., New York. These are some of our biggest markets. So, um, sure. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm so excited yeah, for yeah. you guys. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. I love learning about your business and the um, – positive impact you guys are making on the world really felt important to me when I read about your company. And I've already told so many people that I was interviewing you and everyone's like, oh yeah, I love that brand. And it was so great to hear people saying that, you know, and um, uh, just knowing that already that people in my circle already knew about your brand and, you know, cause it's not sold in any stores here. So I, yeah, I don't yeah. see it out, you know, and, um, Anyway, I really look forward to seeing what you guys are doing, and now I'm going to follow your questivals around the world and check out your yes, Facebook please, page uh, on a regular basis and see the fun photos that people post. And awesome. um, thank you so much for spending some yeah, time well, thanks, with me Sarah. today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you Appreciate for helping me share our story. Of course. Thanks for tuning in to A Street Smart MBA with Sarah Shaw. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to get the latest episodes anytime, anywhere. And we'll see you on the next one.